0: Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting Podcast, and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode five, and we have CEO of Prioma Capital, Brendan Poots, joining the podcast. Brendan started Prioma in 2010, and today it has its place as one of the world's premier sports betting hedge funds. Preoma offers a different asset class for investors looking at diversification of their portfolio and is independent from economic conditions in the traditional investing markets. As you can probably tell, this episode was a lot of fun and involved delving into the strategy, operations, and intelligence behind one of the world's leading sports betting hedge funds. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Brendan Poots. Today I'm joined by Prioma Group CEO Brendan Poots.
1: Brendan, thank you very much for coming on. Jake, thank you. Pleasure.
0: Brendan, you have certainly an interesting CV and background doing a little bit of research. It was very fascinating from my perspective. So why don't you start by taking us through a little bit of your background and how it all began for you.
1: All right. Well, like most tragics in this this industry, I um, started young, courtesy of my Irish heritage, where having a bet on everything and anything was was part of the, the growing up process. And being the youngest of three boys, I was always surrounded by form guides and sport. So that's how it all started i'd always had an interest in in sport and obviously having an interest in gambling as well so that was the start of it all and like most people i had a flutter on the horses as a kid and but i guess the the genesis of getting good at it was i was in my early 20s i was playing cricket and i was trying to supplement my income from cricket and By paying the rent through gambling, if you like, or as I termed it back then, investing in sport. So the start of it being serious was probably when I was 19, 20, 21, Um, and then after graduating from the University of Sydney, I was very fortunate not to get a job. I'm, I'm a graduate chemical engineer. Most people were really, really smart. People went into banking. Most people went to work for the big petrochemical companies. I was lucky enough to get a contract to go and play league cricket in England um, at a place called Three Bridges, not far from Gatwick Airport. And my benefactor, who was the guy that sponsored me with the house and the car and airfare and all of that, he was a bookmaker. So what I quickly learnt was that with my cricket commitments, especially through the summer, finishing most nights at about 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, I was then able to work as a bookmaker for a lot of the night racing at places like Windsor. So I spent the next three or four years playing cricket professionally and then when I decided to stay a couple of winters in England, I used to run one of his um, bookmaking agencies in Surrey. So I did that and that was back in the mid to late 90s um, towards the turn of the century and that was when sports betting was was big in England. Um, It wasn't so big certainly in Australia from my memory at the time. So I was looking at the sport, I was watching the way money flows as a bookmaker and I was noticing that there were opportunities there. So after I hung up my, my cricket boots which were basically forced upon me because I wasn't good enough. I, ch- I chose to pursue a career in in technology ventures, funding new technologies and, and learning about the finance side of engineering, for want of a better term. I did that for a couple of years and then, again, through Fortune, I in 2006 and 2007, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to go to Uh, Columbia University in New York to complete my MBA. And it was during that time, and if you recall that was just prior to the global financial crisis, I um, noticed that there was opportunities with the burgeoning sports betting markets, primarily through Betfair and a lot of the big global bookmakers increasing their holds. I was being taught how to trade currencies, taught how to trade stocks and shares, etc. But I knew I was never going to be really good at that because I never had a real interest in it. So what I decided to do was use the skills that I'd been taught and combine them with my passion of sport. And I started trading my own money in 2008. After a couple of years, I then launched Prioma Capital, which is the sports hedge fund. Um, There's a lot of There's a lot of stuff out there about a fund called Galileo, which is apparently the first fund. But actually, we were the first fund. We just didn't market ourselves very well. So we started in 2010, Priyana Capital. um, And now we've been going for six or so years, primarily trading um, football, as in soccer, cricket, golf. And much to my chagrin, only a little bit of horse racing, which now only makes up about 15% of our total turnover whereas as a kid growing up that was my first passion and so that is where we are right now
0: so i'm i'm interested when you were in the uk what are the, some of the things you learnt i guess before you got really stuck into your career being around a bookmaker being involved in the bookmaking business what are some of the things that you took with you from those experiences
1: well what i did notice and this was um my bookmaker back then was a i guess a traditional bookmaker as we as we used to know it, they're a, are an opinion-based bookmaker. So it wasn't just a case of copying the, the odds of other bookmakers and it wasn't a case of just um, make, treating the business like risk management and just trying to take a small percentage. Derek was an opinion bookmaker and I learnt a lot about him on how to do the form, how to back your opinion and how to make sure that if you were backing your opinion, you still had an out. So the, the risk management that went with it because here we were trading, if you like, or gambling with an individual's money and I knew who the individual was. So it wouldn't be like working for a huge corporate where I previously worked where if you lose a bit of money, you don't hurt as much. So I learned learnt very quickly to respect money, respect the value of money, but also to back my own opinion. And that was, that's, very, that's, that's crucial for what we do today.
0: So when you started playing around and betting with your own money, I'm sure then also you you learned some lessons in the beginning. W- was it a structured, I guess, business at that point when you were doing that, or was it was it you with the laptop sort of on the weekend, trading some games and putting some positions in pre-game and trying to see if you can make some money in play? And I guess was it a, a serious business for you then, or did it did it grow into that?
1: Oh, definitely. I approached it as a serious business always from from the start, but it was never really a serious business until the hedge fund itself was formed um, and to give you, to give you an example, a lot of the trades when I started i 'm quantitatively trained, but i 'm certainly um, not the best at building algorithm or developing algorithms and building models. So my model now at the start was very rudimentary and very archaic compared to what we have now and that's courtesy of some of the smart guys that I have working with us in the team at the moment. So it started out being very rudimentary and it was almost like the variables which we started to weight, which I was weighting at different strengths back in the day were a result of mistakes I was making. So to give you an example, if I was um, betting on a on a horse race and I liked, I liked a horse, but it was a desperate leader and that's the way it used to race if i had a bet on it but as a desperate leader it got challenged early on it would weaken out of the race i quickly made that a variable which i considered and that was never to bet on horses which were desperate leaders because i either missed the start or if they get taken on they wouldn't be able to finish the race off so it was a case of i was i was learning and adding to my model adding to my algorithm all along Whereas now, most of the algorithms have been developed, so the updating of the algorithms is more about a bit of optimizing, adding new data, as opposed to the actual development of those algorithms.
0: So it sounds like then you have certain types of, I mean, on the sports side, matches or teams, and then the racing side, sort of racing styles. Do you have, I guess, certain styles that suit the way you trade and the way you invest?
1: styles as you mean you mean sports or markets yes
0: are you interested in for example high totals where in the first sort of 15 minutes of the match if there's no scoring that high total might drop in play and you can sort of trade out of that position things like that
1: absolutely there's an example happening right now as we speak um and that's the man united versus swansea epl match which is going on we um just to give you some qualitative type Analysis, which was underpinned by our, our quantitative stuff, Man United have not been prolific in front of goal this year. Swansea are facing relegation, so if they got a point out of this match, we thought that um, they'd be really happy with that because they're not expected to win it. So we expected a slow start. So we backed under two and a half goals at about 2.06, I think it was. And by the time after 35 minutes. That was into $1.40, so we'd already hedged out our position at that point, point. Um, and then on the stroke of halftime, Man United got a penalty and scored, by which time that market was into $1.30. So there's a typical example of how we combine the qualitative aspects of how a match might set up against the quantitative data.
0: So take us a little bit deeper, if you can, into the, the way you're trading in-game and your positions pre-game. Are you always hedging out of your positions uh, in game?
1: Uh, yeah, we take a, We'll take a pre-match position. And to give another good example, was we took a pre-match position on Man United tonight. Uh, we'd rated them at a dollar thirty-eight, um, and they were at, at pre-match. They were a dollar forty-seven. So we took a little bit of them at a dollar forty-seven, and then we took a little bit more of them at a dollar sixty-five in play. And then when they went in front, they went immediately into a nineteen. So we took out our position then. So unless unless Man United were to score those two goals bang, bang and get to a position where you've got a degree of comfort, we would always be trading out.
0: What about mitigating losses?
1: Uh, exa- exactly the same. So what we do, and this is why we, we trade football is a good example. If we look at what's going on at the moment, there's about $7 million Australian dollars just in the Betfair market alone, and if I look across at Matchbook, there's a bit more, and then my other service provider. So we're talking about 10 or $15 million on this match, just in the match odds market. And we like football because if we get it wrong in the match odds market, we can then take our loss in the match odds market, but then we can hedge or take a natural hedge in the over-under market or the correct score market. So we like, we like um, sports where there are multiple markets, all of which have enough depth. For us to be able to hedge out or reposition ourselves within a market within a match.
0: Interesting. So, what generally? What percentage do you have to be correct, or not even correct, but on the right side for it to be a positive business? Is it? I mean, typically in sports, you, you've anywhere anywhere from you know fifty four to sixty percent is is going to be great long term. Do you need to be right that similar amount of time based on your investing and trading strategy, or is it higher or lower?
1: Uh, It doesn't have to be that high. We only, like, for instance, in the Man United match tonight, we only have to be right for the... We only had to be... for Certainly the under goal market, we only had to be right for 20 minutes. And now, now that we've already got out of our trade, we don't have to be right at all. Um, uh, Swansea could come back and win 2-1 now. They're still 1-0 down after one hour, but they could come back and win the match. Our initial position of a Man United win was wrong but now it doesn't matter so it's if we were the 55 60 percent sort of number you're talking about is effectively if you're having a one directional trade of who's going to win or how many goals they're going to be but um, we found I found that too volatile for my liking and it's also too volatile for my investors because there can be long streaks of up and long streaks of down streaks of down rather whereas we would much rather just go steady Eddie um, I've used in a sporting analogy before. Getting the 55 or 60 percent, getting a match right, is like hitting a home run. Whereas getting 10 or 15 minutes of a match right is like getting the first base. So what we try and do is get the first base and get the first base a lot.
0: You mentioned earlier about derivative markets. Is there enough? Is there enough liquidity in those derivative markets to? be playing or trading in those markets to help you with your positions or is it purely the head-to-heads, the over-unders and the total markets that have all of that that volume?
1: Well, it depends. It's on a sport-by-sport basis, but certainly in football, there's soccer, there's enough in the markets to accommodate us at this point, absolutely. There are the, the markets are extremely deep and obviously um, as the match evolves and, and what you'll find mostly too is that as the match evolves, that's where a lot of the the volume comes from in terms of the in-play market. And if I switch over here to the in-play market, at the start at the start of the match, the under/over market had about um, four hundred thousand dollars in it. It's now got about one point four million in it. So in the last half an hour, there's been another million dollars traded, just in under/overs, just on Betfair.
0: So that's the sort of money you need to see to be able to be safely trading your positions during a match and is that correct only available in the top 4 or 5 sports or do you find that even on some of the lower tier sports
1: you can get it on a, a, across probably certainly you can get it across a lot of the, all of the american sports but we don't trade them and i can i'll tell you a little bit about that later but certainly you get it in all the football codes you get it in all the cricket matches and you get it in all the major golf tournaments so with those three sports that we focus on at the moment there is more than enough liquidity for us to be able to get in and out as we need to, depending on how the position of our of our match portfolio is.
0: So do you and your team have a defined trading strategy when it comes to each match or each sport? Because I'm sure there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of different variables. There's probably red cards and substitutions and yep. injuries and all that type of stuff. Is there a clear sort of roadmap for you and your team when you're watching a match or is there... An element of you know you need a trained eye to understand the not only the sport and the players but also the the trading side of it and the mathematics on the the other side of it.
1: There's a combination of that, um, and that's a good entree, I guess, into talking about the team that we've got. What I've and and one of the reasons we only trade cricket, golf, and football is because our quantitative guys are all experts in those sports they love the sport they play the sport they can talk about the sport day in day out what i've found and this has happened as a, as much out of mistake as anything else is that i've previously used very smart phd qualified data scientists quantitative guys but they didn't actually understand the sport they just understood the numbers so what we were finding was that the numbers would be produced and then when they cast their eye over those numbers they weren't able to put any perspective into what those numbers meant so what we've been able to do we've got a great cricket guy we've got a great golf guy we've got a great football guy so they look at the numbers and they can tell whether something's wrong or right just by looking at the numbers because they have an innate feel for what the sport is and what the sport might mean and a good example is you think of tonight's match between Tottenham and Arsenal Those sides hate each other, have hated each other for many years, the whole North London rivalry. So there's that whole qualitative factor which needs to be not necessarily built into the algorithm, but it certainly needs to be taken account of. So those sorts of things are all brought together at the end. So we've got the quantitative numbers spiel, which has been um, built, which the the model's been built over, over a few years with all the latest data. And then at the end of that, every week we will have our trading meeting where we'll talk about, okay, how's this match going to play out? How are we going to attack it? What markets do we want to be in?
0: So how do you split the different functions within the business? Because I'm sure that the trading aspect is a skill and then obviously selecting the teams you want to have a position on and the value on those teams is also a different skill and then obviously you've got the third aspect of managing your clients and their expectations. So do you split those... Oh, do you do all those aspects or do you split them up um, between different people within the business?
1: Yep, we've approached it very much along the lines, of you would, with a, a traditional investment house or hedge fund trading traditional vehicle, or traditional um, assets, be it shares or currencies or bonds or what have you, in that we've got a, a quantitative analyst side and we have one dedicated for each sport and then we have the trading side. So they're separately... It's Chinese walls for one of the use of a financial term, but they're separate entities within the business. Now, there is a bit of overlap in terms of the trading meetings and the discussions about what are we going to do this weekend. But certainly the analysis, uh, the number crunching is taken care by an analyst and the trading, which is principally me, is taken care of separately to the number crunching.
0: So, who do you see as your competitors then? Are you you mentioned the Galileo fund earlier. Are they yep. are they your competitors or are you pitting yourself against, you know, the stocks and the bonds and the financial markets as as typically would understand them?
1: That's well, the Galileo fund they fell over a few years ago, so they're no longer a competitor. And look, there's there's lots of private syndicates out there, there's lots of professional punters out there. Now, one of the reasons I went down this route was a professional punter can be a very lonely existence because you might be sitting there in your own room doing your own thing, and there's very little um, interaction. So the reason I've gone down this road was because I wanted to be, I wanted to build a company, and I wanted to build a company of diverse people who are doing interesting things. So because I've set it up exactly the same as you would a typical financial investment house, when when I speak to new potential investors, I ask them to compare us to. A hedge fund or the global financial markets or the benchmark being the asx or the FTSE. so in terms of competitors um that's the hedge fund unit we we measure ourselves against the hedge fund universe we don't measure ourselves against private syndicates who bet on sport because one of the other things about um the private syndicates is you don't actually know if they make money or don't make money because they don't they're not obligated to release their results so we're thoroughly open and transparent in terms of our results. Hence, we can go and speak to someone as I did last year at a conference in London and spoke to a lot of the investment houses in London about our returns, our strategies and what we think we can do moving forward.
0: So take us into the reporting side then. I'm interested in that. I'm, I'm sure there's you know clients who are interested in sport and that's maybe one of yep. the reasons why they're involved. Do you have to have day-to-day contact with those clients or do you have to... I guess, release all the different positions or potential positions that you and your team want to be taking?
1: Um, We try to. uh, To give you an idea, when we first started, most of the people who were involved in the business were sports fans. Um, As we've hung around a few more years than many people expected, and as our uh, results have continued to be chipping away upward, a lot of our investors now are, are quite agnostic about what the returns are, what we're actually, what the underlying asset is. They're just worried about the returns. And to give you a good example, I had a, a client who's been with us for well, he must be three or four years now, um, and he he gave us six figures three or four years ago, and I spoke to him only a month or so ago, and he was telling me that his self-managed super fund, he was up and down, he wasn't going anywhere but he liked the fact that we were able to keep tracking north, so he then doubled his investment with us. So what we found is that as we've been around longer and as people have started to understand the concept um, with much greater clarity, um, they're, they're becoming agnostic about what we actually trade on. They're just worried about the returns. Now, in terms of their access to what we do, there's, with our website, there's an investors area which allows all of the, our investors to track their portfolio on a daily basis. And where possible, um, and to give you a good example, would be the EPL tonight. They knew what we were doing, how we were trading it, and certainly with the Champions Trophy cricket coming up at the start of June, they've already received a newsletter talking about how we're going to position it and what our, what our intelligence says will be the way that the tournament will unfold. So where possible... We will, we will let them know um, what we're trading and how we're going to trade it. Obviously, there's a lot of intra-sport type, intra-event type trading, which we can't alert them to because we're too busy trading to let them know. But where possible, because that adds, to, that adds to their, I won't say enjoyment, but it certainly adds to their understanding of what is being traded and how their money is being put to work.
0: Interesting. So that's the client side. What about, I know you have investment vehicles in Australia and Gibraltar. Is there anything you need to do to protect your IP when it comes to reporting on, the, on that side with regards to, I mean, in the US you've got the SEC, um, you know, ASIC in Australia, those type of things. Are you yep. concerned at all about doing the reporting on that side or is it all uh, pretty confidential and protected?
1: Um, when you say the reporting, you mean when we, like the reports to our investors, what is contained in them,
0: yeah, so is there any detailed analysis that you need to provide? Um, how?
1: No. No? No. They, they will, we, will, we will provide our price versus what the market is, and then we'll tell them what we're going to do. And if, for it's, a, if it's a big tournament such as the, the, the EPL, the, the winner's market for the year, we said at the start of the year, this is what we like and these are our prices. If you're going to have a bet, have a bet on these people or bet against these guys. So, no, there's nothing there from, a, from, a, from an IP perspective.
0: And you mentioned your client who had a self-managed super fund. So what attracts someone like that to initially invest and then continue to invest? Is it, I guess, the hedging strategy reduces the volatility or is it that they don't want to be going through the ups and downs that you mentioned of the general markets?
1: Yeah, it's a combination of a few things. Um, I guess for most... Back in the day, it was because they liked sport and they understood sport and they liked to have a bet and the fact that they got some information helped their own betting themselves. But one of the big things which um, a lot of both the professional investment houses as well as our individual investors like is the fact that our returns are, are completely uncorrelated to the rest of any market. So it doesn't really matter what's happening in the greater economy, whether it's Donald Trump becoming president Or whether it's the threat of terrorism etc none of that will actually affect what's happening in the global sports markets so and this is a typical pitch that I would give to anyone who's interested in investing is you know give us a side. if you've got a hundred dollars to invest across all different asset classes give us five dollars of that and that can be your buffer against the ups and downs that you might see in property or currencies or stocks so it's the non-correlated nature of our returns which are of most of most appeal to our investors.
0: Okay, so it sounds like the external risks then are minimized greatly compared to other asset classes. There's obviously yeah. the internal risk as well and I guess the hedging strategy is one way to, to mitigate those risks and I'm um, Correct. And is there any is there any situations where you'll see out a full game and won't trade out of position?
1: Uh, if for instance um had we backed see Manchester United are still only leading one 0 and here's, here's a good example of why you would do what we did Manchester United um, were at, at the start of this conversation they were a dollar nineteen okay they're still only they're still trading at a dollar sixteen so I don't know how long we're in we're probably in thirty minutes this conversation so that's an example of why you wouldn't keep your position open because you've kept had we kept our position open at a dollar nineteen we'd have been sitting here for 30 minutes and we've only made four cents. So that's a good example of why we'd be taking out our, our position. Had Man United scored two goals very quickly, then we'd be more inclined to hold that position open for the rest of the match because they would require to have Swansea score two goals for them not to win the match. And we'd have more confidence in that. But sitting there for half an hour with three cents gained from a dollar nineteen into a dollar fifteen, it doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, okay. Interesting. So take me on to the bookmaker side then, because most people you talk to who are positive E V bettors and, and make money doing this, they'll all claim it's impossible to get money down, it's impossible to get bets down. A lot of the bookmakers aren't interested in taking those bets. I'm sure that's is that does that extend to the matchbooks and the bet fairs of the world?
1: No, no, and we've got a Obviously, no, it doesn't. Is the short answer. Now, obviously, with some of you have different um, commission schemes with um, the two, the, those two major exchanges. Now, we have we've been able to because of some of the volumes we've traded, and because of some of the things that we bring to them in the background, we've been able to get some decent commission structures on that. So, the short answer to that is no. And then, when we look at some of the bigger bookmakers that we that work on a high volume, um, low margin type operation, they're quite happy to take our money as well. But yes, we're not we're not going we're not going to um go to sports bet or someone like that and have thirty thousand dollars on Man United because I don't necessarily think they'll take that.
0: Yeah, no I think you're probably well, right. Well they might that.
1: take it they might take it once. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you mentioned a bit earlier about the US side. I'm sure that it's probably an attractive proposition. In sports like NFL and NBA, or even even college, um, does that? Yes. Would that, or does that suit your overall investment strategy? Given the potential turnover levels, or is it just not possible for your business right now to get involved in the U.S. side?
1: No, it's it, it's it's very possible. And recently, there was a there was some legislation passed in the last eighteen months or so out of Las Vegas, which allows what they call entity betting. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but effectively, previously because of the Wire Act and things like that, it'd be, if you were in New York and you rang a friend in Las Vegas to have a bet for you, that was actually frowned upon. But a Senate bill was passed, and we were um, fortunate enough to be helping with the crafting of the regulation. A Senate bill was passed a couple of years ago that allows entities such as Prioma Capital to operate out of Nevada and actually manage... Um, USA investors' money out of Nevada. So if you're in New York, you'd be able to invest in our fund in, in Nevada and then have us trade sports on your behalf. So that is very much on the agenda for us. One of the reasons we haven't ventured there uh, permanently, other than being there a couple of times to scale, scale the landscape, is that if I go back to my my, my mentioning earlier of the guys that I have in charge of football, golf and cricket, they're very good at those sports. We're yet to find someone who is very good at USA sports and by that I mean not just a gambler, not just the guy who's a good handicapper but someone who actually understands the sport, understands how to build a model and then understands how to trade the sport based on that. Trading sport in America is not necessarily something they're very familiar with. It seems to be much more one-directional or batting me over the underlying type number. So the only thing that's stopping us from being active in the USA is finding some very good quants who are who have intimate knowledge on usa base sports.
0: Is that something you can teach in your experience or not?
1: I think my experience was that um, I was trying to teach a guy <laughs> – who was very good at numbers but had no idea about sport and we came up short so I need to find someone who or some some people who actually understand the sport have maybe played it but are also very sharp and very very good at developing the quantitative side of the business I not I get a lot of emails from people talking about um, talking about how they're the best stock picker in the world and stuff like that and there's my track record um, you know that's that's of no appeal to us. Okay. And just 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 to let you know, Swansea have just equalised. So that would have be a had I had that position open, it would be like, why have I kept it open for so long?
0: Yeah, interesting.
1: So that dollar eight, that dollar that dollar eighteen, dollar nineteen will now be back out to a dollar eighty or something like that.
0: Yep, yep. Yeah, there you go. Fascinating insight into the live betting ups and downs of a trader. Yes. That.
1: Yeah, so I'd be tearing my hair out, but as it is, we took our, we took our profits 40 minutes ago, so we're good.
0: <laughs> I'm sure not everyone's the same. So you touched on the betting entities. Is that only betting in Nevada, or can you have vehicles outside of Nevada as you do and, I guess, mix up the trading and the operations and those type of things, or is there strict rules in keeping it within, within Nevada?
1: It's keeping it within Nevada at the moment, and that's one of the issues currently is that there's only one bookmaker out of Nevada who is um, happy to work with these entities. Is that CGT? That's so, CGT, correct. So and, what, and, what, and whilst the limits we can get for American sports are quite good, the limits we can get for the sports that we currently want to trade on, such as the foot, English football, et cetera, et cetera, they're not so good. So that's one of the other reasons as well.
0: So you would have to be a I guess to survive in as a betting entity in Las Vegas given the current structure you probably need to be only betting pre-match and taking the binary bets like you mentioned correct. earlier correct and that's correct. Not something that is it's not that it's not sustainable but it's a difficult it's a difficult approach as opposed to your hedging strategy which I'm sure is much more complicated and but it's obviously more effective.
1: Well, what it what we have been always contemplating and one of the reasons One of the reasons that we started the first fund was, A, it was a multi-sport fund, and B, it was a hedging fund, was because we knew that by doing that, we'd have much greater control of the volatility. So if I was to go and speak to someone who had $200,000 to invest, I'd be very confident that they wouldn't be investing on the 1st of January, and at the end of January, I'd be ringing them up and saying we had a minus 10% month. Sorry about that. The whole purpose of it was to build a steady-eddy type, gradual return type vehicle. Now, there's nothing stopping us from having what like a high-octane vehicle, which would be a lot more binary betting, and that is something we've considered in the past. Is it all right? We've developed a track record for... A steady 15% per annum 15 to 20% per annum type return some people want 40% some people want 50% well you can get that but you might have some periods of downturn so the idea of a, of a one directional type fund is of interest and it might be something we still do we're not sure but certainly the way the United States is structured at the moment that would be the path we'd have to go down and a, we don't necessarily want to do that and b we don't understand american sports intimately enough for us to do that.
0: So how did and you mentioned you might have been involved in the path uh with the betting entities? How is it that they anticipate getting a different I guess certainly the mentality in the US on both on the bookmaking side seems to be to as much as possible balance the betting, balance the action, not take too many positions. I mean, the way it seems to me is that these entities are coming in would either have a track record of winning such as yours or planning on winning and structuring their bets and putting systems in place so that there's no casual betting and they're doing everything they can to make sure that they're eking out profits month after month that doesn't seem anything that any bookmaker in in Nevada other than CGT it sounds like would be interested in at all how is that going to be overcome
1: well and this was the conversation I had with CGT they very much wanted to get into the because they're an offshoot, if you like, of the financial markets, they were looking to drive a very high volume, low margin type business. So they they were happy to be like that. Now, obviously, from a, a competition perspective, you'll need the other entity, other bookmakers who want to come on board to have a similar viewpoint because, obviously, CGT are going to want to start putting some money, laying some money off, as well as an entity such as ourselves. If we got started, we'd want to have multiple service providers so that's one of the reasons why we're not there because a it's an expensive setup and b if we were sitting there sitting on our hands only being able to get a couple of thousand dollars here and there it wouldn't be worth it but certainly the view of cgt was to turn themselves into a very high volume type business
0: okay so i guess it'll take some time to develop that market because you know if you're going to win a couple of percent each month then every bookmaker i would imagine is not interested in that business so i guess it's going to take some time.
1: It is. It's going to take some time. And what we've found as well is that a lot of there's been a few people who have started the business. There's a few entities that are currently registered in the United States and they've had a little bit of a few issues with compliance and things like that with the SEC. So we're letting all of that dust settle before we'd entertain it because we were, when we spoke to the governing bodies and the different senators around town in Las Vegas, we told them how our KYC works and how we want to make sure that the money. We have a lot of checks with our banks to make sure that the money that is coming into our fund is not being laundered or it's it's coming from a registered person in a registered bank account, et cetera, et cetera, whereas that was quite foreign for the Americans. Yep. Uh, so a lot of the smaller entities are having some issues with these, the, the continual checking because the SEC wants to make sure that the money that's coming in is clean money.
0: Yeah, exactly. So do you have any... I guess, opinions on what legalization, if and when it comes to the U.S., would do to the betting market in the U.S.? Do you think it will be, um, you know, the gates will flood open, or do you think it'll be a tough sort of transition period, and it'll take some time for the adoption and the absorption to happen?
1: Look, I think there'll be an immediate um, bounce of some description. It won't be overnight in the sense that everyone who's having a bet with their bookmaker in in Manhattan is going to start betting with legal operators because they'll have developed those relationships but certainly I just think that um, the more it is brought above ground the better it will be longer term so I think if they legalize when they legalize depending on who you speak to I think it will be good for bet guys who want to have a bet and girls who want to have a bet in America, but it will also be good for people around the world because all of a sudden it becomes the, a much bigger global business.
0: Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that. So I just wanted – you mentioned golf earlier. I'm interested yep. in how you, I guess, execute your trading strategy with golf because, I mean, typically the broadcasts can be delayed. Uh, the information coming from on a hole-by-hole basis or player-by-player basis can be delayed just because – I guess you can't have one person watching a match like you can with other sports. You need yep. someone following every golfer or being on every hole or every green. So how is it that you operate in the golfing in the golfing arena?
1: Okay, and it's not it's not dissimilar to to what we have in the cricket because, for instance, whilst we trade a lot of cricket, we don't trade on a a, a ball by ball basis because we know there's a certain latency um, in broadcast in. Commentating and the updating of odds, so it's similar with golf. We're not doing hole-by-hole trades What we will be doing is round-by-round head-to-head type trades. so it doesn't necessarily matter What's happening on a per-hole basis although that obviously means things on the overall picture So a lot of what we do with golf It's it's more about end-of-round trading or it's a matchup head-to-head at the start of the tournament so and most of the liquidity in golf happens at the end of the round anyway so after close of play on day one if that's when all the liquidity comes back in so you can reposition your portfolio at the end of the play so we're not so much um the latency the the long delays the incorrect feeds that sometimes come in that doesn't really hamper us so much
0: and which way is golf trending from a global betting perspective in your mind is it is it going upwards and positive or is it pretty much stifled
1: no it's going up the majors are incredible, uh, but now your typical your typical week to week PGA event will have something in the lines of uh, I guess somewhere on our service providers our three main service providers will have something of the order of ten to twenty five million dollars traded on it so and we're not and we're and that 's only the two exchanges plus one bookmaker so we're not it's not like our service providers are vast at this point so and then you look at the majors. And we're talking 100, 150 million dollars each major, so it's a it's a big enough business to sustain a section of our portfolio, most definitely.
0: Okay, I know I'm taking up a lot of your time, but it is very interesting for me to chat and talk about this stuff. A couple no, more before we go.
1: Keep, keep going, because there's still it's still a couple of minutes left in this match, so I've <laughs> got to be up anyway. So. And there's another and there's another few matches starting in 30 minutes, so we're fine.
0: There you go. So. I'm interested in the betting industry as a whole, and I'm sure with your global perspective, you might have an interesting answer. Uh, has there been anything in the past, I guess since you started and since you got, you know, heavily involved, any advancements in technology or any any positive, I guess, betting products or betting offerings or, or just technology-wise that has, you know, helped the betting industry? And other than sort of the bet fairs and the matchbooks of the world on the bookmaking side, has there been anything else that's been a positive impact on on your business or the the global betting industry.
1: Well, for technology's made things brilliant, um, the, the, and as much and it's also been a bit of a noose around the neck for a lot of the Australian punters because the fact that we could the technology, the fact that there is so much data out there, the fact that you're able to get the information that's required is is brilliant. The other thing that's been great is the in play volumes that we're talking about and that's like basically my business the business that my my team and I run whilst it would be possible without in-play trading or in-play betting it would be a lot scarier from a money management perspective so in-play betting has made things brilliant the downside of that of course is that the current situation in Australia doesn't allow in-play betting to take place other than being on the phone now that's I still quite find that quite bewildering because you can do it with horse racing, but you can't do it with sport. So, for instance, tonight while I'm watching this match, the trades that are being made are, are, being, are being made in our overseas office, so I know where we're, what we're doing, and it's it's in play, it's easy. But not having that facility in Australia is is quite it's quite archaic, and I don't quite understand that. So, technology's made it brilliant, in plays made it brilliant. Unfortunately, Australia's lagging behind in that. Now, what has also made it much much better for us as a business is the fact that um, all the broadcasters generally you can watch any match you can you can replay any match you want of any sport any day of the week so the actual understanding of the sports, the understanding of teams, just the information collation is being made much easier for us so all of those things have sort of collided and it's made the operation of our business possible.
0: So what about things like automation? Is there any situation, and this may be just a fictional creation in my mind, but is there any situation where your algorithms and your, you've got certain triggers that are hit or that are reached in certain matches, is there any situation where there's an automation factor where the bet is automatically made if the price is correct uh, as you want it and as a certain trigger in a match or is it always using human fingers to execute every trade?
1: No, it's uh, that we do have. Uh, there are some trades which are tailor-made for automation, and those trades we have are all done on an automated automated basis. So, whilst we like to monitor the match from a physical trader perspective, because what we like to see, effectively, what's happening is that we're betting into a market, and market is not necessarily a rational place. So there are opportunities that come up in play which are driven by the irrationality of, of fans, of bettors. Um, so we like to watch the match or be involved from that perspective. But certainly in the background, there are certain trades which are completely automated, which just, they, if the price gets hit and the situation gets, is the correct situation, those prices, will, those prices will be taken and the trade will be executed.
0: Okay, because I watch a lot of NFL and I follow the markets Certainly pregame and then also in play, because it seems like quite often there's you know a three point favorite in the n f l and they go down seven nothing or ten nothing in the in the first quarter or even early second quarter, and the price has you know gone from minus three to three and plus three and a half you know pretty quickly, even though you know we're only twenty five thirty percent of the way through the match, and there might be you know factors where they've barely even had possession of the ball or some some crazy factors that have gone into that score being the case. It seems like with the automation, you can have those sort of events where the market swings in a way that is positive for your betting strategy and have that automation whereby the bets are made without any human fingers or any, I guess, human error as well is is taken out of it. Is that possible going forward?
1: Yep, it is. And our algorithms are both pre-match and obviously when we speak on our trading meetings earlier in the week, that's based on the pre-match numbers. But then once the game starts and the new information is brought in, the new odds are forever being updated. So our odds are changing all the time depending on the events that are happening in the match. So we're able to take advantage of the, over, the overreaction, if you like. It's not such a big deal in football. As we discussed earlier tonight, Man United was sitting at that three or four cent price range for 40 minutes. But in cricket, for instance, certainly in the in the T20 format, a couple of sixes are hit and a price can drop by 30, 40 cents. So our in-play algorithms are always telling us what should be hit, what shouldn't be hit, and they'll be taking advantage of those wild fluctuations. So cricket is a great example of how you're able to automate positions and you're able to send out a trade depending on what's happened in the match.
0: Okay, so how often would you deviate from your from what your algorithms are telling you, based on, you know, the human eye or watching a match and saying, yeah, I understand why the algorithms going this way, but this factor is being over, there's an overreaction, or it's something on our side that we are not necessarily getting correct. Do you do that, or is it always in line with what your systems tell you to do?
1: No, it's definitely pre-match. Um, we would look at a game, and even if there's value we would have the discussion about whether it would be a good match or not to be involved in. So because of variables which may or may not be, may or may not be there. So for instance, you've got a match such as your Liverpool versus Everton-Merseyside derby. It wouldn't matter how much value was on offer about either side in a match like that, we wouldn't play it because typically there's always someone sent off or the sides outperform their ratings. So from a pre-match perspective, the numbers guide us, but then when we have our qualitative discussion, we'll then um, put a line through games because of reasons which which we aren't able to actually quantify. So it happens a lot.
0: Okay, okay. So why aren't there 100 or 1,000 other sports betting hedge funds out there?
1: Well there, there could be but I guess as I said there's lots of private syndicates so and there's lots of private syndicates who are much bigger than us so I wouldn't say we I guess a it's difficult you know it doesn't it's not it doesn't come it doesn't come um, cheaply because you have to building the if you want to do it properly that is building the the quantitative side of it is quite difficult finding um clients is a long slow process and that's why we were very i guess strategic in the way we just built the business slowly we built it with a multi-sport fund which was hedging because we had to demystify a lot of what goes on with sports betting that being that you can't win on it or the the returns are too volatile so there's a certain track record that requires to be built Um, it's difficult it's not necessarily a sport, it's not necessarily a profession which if you meet someone people clap you and pat you on the back because a lot of people still associate betting on sport with being for reprobates and for people who are, who are desperate. So there's a few reasons to it um, and look, I've been driven by the desire to build something for myself have my team members all part of it and create something which is a sort of a combination and a distillation of all the things I'm passionate about. Um, Some people might be very good betters, but they don't want to have to deal with building a website, dealing with clients, dealing with auditors, dealing with lawyers, dealing with IP protection and things like that. So there's a lot that goes into it. All of that just happens to be stuff that I've previously undertaken in 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 earlier vocations so to me it's a distillation of everything I wanted to do so it works out nicely for me but because of the many different moving parts in the business it's like for some people it might just be easier to sit at home bed on their own and hang out with their family
0: yep okay one final question before we go and this might be a strange one to finish on but I think you're probably very qualified to to talk about it There's a a writer in the US, Bill Barnwell. He was previously with Grantland. Now he's with ESPN, I believe. He talks a lot about momentum in sport and that it doesn't exist. You, with your background and experience and the day-to-day side, what is your opinion on momentum in sport from a non-betting level, just in general, whether or not there is something exists called momentum uh, during a game or in a sport?
1: Well, I would say that momentum does exist in a sport Uh, if you look at it purely from a physics perspective it's mass times velocity so if you look at a a runner usain bolt he wins because he has the greatest momentum and you see that when he has a slow start and comes over the line so there's that form of momentum now measuring it in team sports is somewhat different and maybe what we're talking about instead of momentum from a pure physicality perspective perspective it might be more psychological And you look at someone like Tiger Woods, when he was at his prime, when he was ever on the leaderboard, people knew he was on the leaderboard and that gave him psychological momentum and he was good enough to capitalise on that. And now from our team sport perspective, again, I think momentum might be the the proxy for ascendancy or gaining ascendancy. And yeah, that can definitely be measured. We do that with all of our in-play trading. We have a, a bunch of metrics which show you how the ascendancy's creeping up on, on one side's behalf and obviously deteriorating on another's. That can be from a from a cricket perspective. It might be taking wickets, or the precursor to that generally is the slowing down of run rates, the restricting of singles, and the rotation of strikes. So we have a bunch of in-play metrics, which we call them momentum metrics, but I assume... Probably the better term is ascendancy metrics. So psychological momentum, I think, is definitely part of all sport. Um, Momentum in its purest physics sense is boxing. If you're punching harder and you're in the same weight division, you've got momentum. If you're running faster, like Usain Bolt, you've got momentum. And certainly from the team sports, gaining ascendancy or gaining momentum, it's a very measurable Um, quantity and that's something we do and it's something we shape a lot of our trading around so the short answer is yes obviously there's a few proxies thrown into the term momentum but I would say yes and I would disagree with anyone who says that just because it can't be measured perhaps in team sports that momentum does not exist I think it does
0: Brendan I appreciate your time I know we've gone a bit over but um, it's been certainly a fascinating and interesting chat for me if anyone wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Best way would be to drop me an email at uh, bpoots at preoma.com or you can go to preoma.com, the website, and all you can contact us via there. But we're always interested in looking at, at uh, finding new recruits, finding new people who want to come and join part of the team and and it is it's part of a team it's not it's my business i started it but everybody shares in it so it's a i enjoy that part of the business as much as any but it's a collegiate type thing so that's the best way
0: fantastic thank you so much for your time i wish you all the very best with all of your bets and all of your trades and i'm definitely going to have to reach out again to have you on to chat another hour or so so brendan thanks very much
1: sure thing jake anytime